about about I'd say about every other year the way it's worked out since 1995 Emily and I have been able to to go to Israel and we've taken a a group of people with us and we're going again this year December 27th and so we have a couple of brochures out in the lobby if you'd like to look at those but it is my it is truly my favorite place to go in the world um, now, as far as physical beauty goes, my favorite place to go is up in northern Israel. There is uh, where the Sea of Galilee is. I mean, it's just, it's nice and peaceful. Every time we go there, I look and I think, well, no wonder Jesus spent most of his ministry here. I have a, a couple of pictures I'd like to show you. That's uh, on the Sea of Galilee, just, uh, I think it was uh, sun, I don't know, we'll just say sunrise, like I got up early. And uh, so that's the Sea of Galilee there. And then there's another picture. Yeah, that's a little boat ride that we take. That's uh, my wife and Kathy Louthian from our church uh, when we went there. And then the next picture is just it's still a place where they fish. They still fish out there. And so it's just a really beautiful area. There's one more picture. And this is right at the, uh, at the mouth of the Sea of Galilee. That is the beginning of the Jordan River. And uh, surprisingly, that part of the Jordan River, it is freezing cold. Because the water runs straight off of, or comes straight off of Mount Hermon, and so as far as natural beauty goes, those are my, that's my favorite part of all of Israel. Now, spiritually, my favorite part in Israel is when we go into Jerusalem. We go to the Mount of Olives, and it's significant what took place there, and especially at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And that is my daughter; uh, she is sitting there in the Mount of Olives. That is one of the olive trees there. And in the next picture, I, I just took a picture of this tree, uh, and that's my finger. Somebody pointed that out, so that was not a good photographer, so thanks. Uh, but anyway, that tree is uh, t- about 2,000 years old. Uh, so just an ancient olive tree. It's right there in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I, I just point those things out uh, because they're significant, but I, especially today, because we are moving towards Easter right now. I mean, we are in the month of April And our focus today is going to be on one of the significant events leading up to Easter, which is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane was really, it was the the laying, more of the laying of the foundation for our faith, which is unshakable. And of course, we know that we celebrate as Christians, Easter is, it is the most important holiday that we celebrate. It is when we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so that is exciting news for those of us who are followers of Christ, because as a follower of Christ, what Jesus experienced after his death is what we're going to get to experience as well. I mean, we're told in Romans 6, 4, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. So man, Easter is a big deal. You know, it, is, it is about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, which made it possible for the resurrection of his followers. Now, I want to kind of cover this again because I think it's very easy for us to start having a really clinical view about Easter. Like, yeah, what happened on Easter? Well, yeah, we know what happened on Easter. Jesus, you know, he went to the cross, he died, and then three days later, he got up again. 
You know, like it's like we're ordering off of the menu at San Jose's. You know, like it's just sort of a it's just sort of something that happened, and we don't think it's really that big of a deal. Y'all, it is a big, big deal. And so today we're going to look into our passage of scripture and we're going to see the laying of the foundation of our unshakable faith. And today it starts in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, let me ask you all a question. How many of you have, are familiar or have heard of the Garden of Gethsemane? Have you all heard of that before? Okay, so a lot of you have heard of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what took place there, you might have heard of it, but what took place there is significant. And so what, what took place there? Well, this is where Jesus begins the process of changing our world. But as Jesus is approaching the cross, here's the deal. He feels it. As Jesus is coming to the cross, he experiences emotion. And and I want us to understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he recognized that it mattered. He recognized that there was going to be suffering and a price to pay. So if you have your Bible, we're going to follow this story in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look in verse number 36. And so as you, as you look at that passage of Scripture, I, I hope to kind of give you a little, a little bit of geography so you can kind of understand where all this stuff is. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, now if you're familiar with Jerusalem, you know that big gold dome in Jerusalem, you all familiar with seeing that? Yes? Okay, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So that gold dome that's there, right across on the eastern side from the gold dome, there's this big valley, and it's called the Kidron Valley. And then right when you come up from the Kidron Valley, there is what is known as the Mount of Olives. Y'all familiar? Y'all heard of that, right? It's the Mount of Olives. And it's the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And in our scripture, what Jesus has just done, he and his disciples have just taken the Passover meal. Okay, now we, we, we now, it is now known as the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion for us. And while he was there at the Lord's Supper, what Jesus did, says he took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. He takes, he eats it, says, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. So the disciples are sitting there because they're thinking Jesus is getting ready to be crowned king. And now Jesus says, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And he takes a cup. Y'all remember this part? Takes a cup. This is my blood. It's going to be shed for you for forgiveness of sins. And he says, take it and drink it in remembrance of me. So the disciples, this is, uh, this is radically different than that what they were expecting. Jesus knows he is now moving to the cross. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see that when he's moving there, there are some emotions and some feelings that he has about it. And I just want us to, when we think about Easter and the cross, I want us to understand Jesus felt it. So, so what kind of emotions did he experience? We're going to see in our text today, if you look in verse 36, we're going to see that one thing Jesus experienced was agony. In verse 36, it, said, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which were the brothers James and John, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. This is Jesus. And then he said to them, the disciples, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. 
Now, when Jesus is saying this stuff, he's saying it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane is located on the Mount of Olives. Okay, so if it's on the Mount of Olives, what do you assume, what kind of tree do you think is all over the Mount of Olives? It's olive trees. And so it was a, basically, it was a, like an olive farm. And so here's what, here's what the, the farmers would do. They'd have an olive tree, every, the, the olives begin to get ripe, they go over there, it's like they shake the tree, they get sticks, they knock the olives down out of the tree. And the olives would fall to the ground and they gather them up, and they gather them up and they take them to a place where they can lay them out and there's a thing called a millstone. And that millstone, what it will do is that they will run that millstone over the olives and it will press down and crush the olives. And what do you think comes out of the olives whenever you press down on them? Y'all are good. I, was, I thought somebody would say olive juice. And so it's olive oil that comes out of it. Now, now olive oil is just a, it's a very important part of the, you know, of the economy of Israel. I mean, it's used for a lot of different things. It's used, it's used for food. You know, if you go, and I said this in the first service, you go to Carabas, you know, they give you that bread and they bring out the olive oil. Don't you like that? And they put it on your plate and they, they put, you can put salt on it. You take your bread and you dip it in there and you eat it. Okay, so that it's used for food. It was used for fuel. You know, you light lamps with olive oil. It was uh, used, you remember the 23rd Psalm? We went through that. It was used in order for medicinal purposes. You could rub it on the sheep's uh, cuts and scrapes or use it as a repellent to keep the flies off of them. A lot of different uses for olive oil. But before you can get olive oil, now here's my question for you. What has to happen to the olive before you get that oil out of it? Yeah, you, you, gotta, you got to crush it, right? you got to squeeze it. Okay, now here's what's interesting to me. The, the word gets it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you will know this. I am not, so I looked it up. You know what, you know what Gethsemane means? It means olive press. Now, this is what's significant to me. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press... Because he knows he's getting ready to get pressed. He knows he's getting ready to be crushed. And before the saving power of Jesus can come out and affect your life and my life, he first of all had to be crushed. So when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross like, yeah, I'm going to the cross, but three days later I'm getting up. He understood what was getting ready to happen. He was going to be crushed. As a matter of fact, that's why we're told in verse number 37, Jesus talked to the disciples and he said, I am sorrowful and deeply distressed. That word distressed, it means to be pressed down, to be crushed. He was pressed so hard, he knew that there was going to be suffering. And he was so overwhelmed by it, he said, I am, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. So what does that mean? Jesus is in agony here. Because he knows what's coming. And you may think, well, why would he be in agony? You know, he's the son of God. Surely he knows he's going to get up from the dead. Well, y'all, that, he was divine, but he's also human. He understood, and he, he, knows, what, he knows what it means to feel pain. 
Jesus knew what it was like to be sad. I mean, Paul wrote about this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He's, Paul was talking about Jesus. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something, something to be used with his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, what does that mean? It means Jesus, he's fully divine, but we see here, he is also fully human, and that meant he experienced emotions. He knew he was taking on the sins of man so that he could bring about the atonement for our sins. This same story is found in Luke twenty-two forty-four. It says about Jesus being in anguish. It's Jesus. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I was, I was, I was trying to think of an example of someone going through agony for someone else. And one of the very first things I thought of, when I thought of agony and somebody going through agony so somebody else might be able to have life, I thought of childbirth. And uh, for those of you who are, are parents, y'all, I'm sure you remember what it was like whenever your wife or ladies, whenever you had that baby. Uh, now, if any of you are pregnant, stick your fingers in your ears. There is pain involved in childbirth. Now, of course, I did not really know this until uh, my wife was uh, going to have our children. Y'all, I'm not going to get crazy or anything. I'm just going to tell you real brief. Uh, when Emily had our very first child, she, she went into labor, and it happened really fast. I mean, no, I mean fast. And so we lived way out in the country, and I had to drive to the hospital. And I'm sitting there, and, I, and you know, so I can tell she is, she's hurting. And uh, so I, I was like, and I was trying to reassure her, like any good husband would do, I was like, it's going to be okay, we're almost there. And she, she said some things to me that were very hurtful. And uh, so she, she wanted me to quit talking, basically. And so I got her to the hospital, and as soon as I got her there, she had the baby. Uh, there's this thing, there's a shot, you know, th- this thing called an epidural. Uh, she didn't get that. I mean, she, and, and it was awful. I mean, you, la- you think, ladies, you think you suffer? I was suffering, you know, just watching that. I was like, oh, my gosh. And, and the thing that was crazy, it happened two more times. So she just had these babies really fast. So she never got the shot, and I was asking for one. And so it was just, but there was, there was agony that was involved on my part, you know. And so, so then here's the, the thing. So, so why would anybody ever do anything like that? Well, now here's, this is why. A mother goes through that agony in order for that child to be able to have life. That's just what happens. Now, on a much grander scale, Jesus endured the agony of the cross so that we could have life. And he knew it. It wasn't a surprise to him. He endured the cross for us. That's what the Bible says. We're told in Hebrews 12 too, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I, I just I don't want us to be too clinical about Easter this year. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew it. And he had feelings about it, emotions. We see there's agony. There's real agony here. But we also see there's an incredible intensity, the stress that Jesus felt about this. Now look with me in verse number 39. It says, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed. Now I'm going to stop there briefly. It says, he fell face down and prayed. When it says that he fell face down, that, that word, here's what it means. It means he fell down, he was pressed down. It's, he is being crushed, just like an olive at the olive press. Okay, so it says he fell face down. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as your will. Then he came to the disciples, and, and he found them sleeping, and he asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it says, and again, a second time, he went away and prayed. The second time, that what that really means there, it says he went away and prayed. The second time, it means again, he's being crushed. He falls face down again. He prays, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time. So again, here we see the third time is what it means. He is being crushed a third time. And he said the same thing once more. Now, so here's what I notice in these verses. There's an incredible intensity that Jesus is experiencing as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being squeezed, you know, physically. There's a lot of pressure. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows he is going to bear the sins of man, but physically he knows that they're going to beat me within an inch of my life. They're going to drive nails into my hands and my feet. But he's also being squeezed spiritually because as he takes on the sin of man, he knows that God, and he's perfect. He's never had sin, but now he's going to be carrying it on his shoulder, and God is going to turn away. Remember that part in the story when Jesus is on the cross, and Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's being squeezed right here. He's under enormous pressure. Now, whenever you're under pressure, what are you, what are you looking for? You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for relief. I want somebody to give me a break. Well, that, this is Jesus. Look what Jesus does. Verse 39. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, I read that. I'm like, what, is a, what cup's he talking about here? The cup he's talking about is the cup of judgment. Jesus is going to, he's going to take the cup of judgment for the sins of man. Now we know that Psalm 75, verses 6 through 9 says, No one from the east or west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It's God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out. Now, who's this cup for? It's for the wicked of the earth. And they're going to drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I'll declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. So here's what Jesus is doing. To be freed from the judgment of sin. 
Because we all, y'all, we are all sinners. And we are all destined to pay the price for our own sins. Jesus steps in. He says, give me the cup, the cup of judgment. He said, I will take it from you, and I will drink it down to its very dregs so that judgment will not come upon you. Now, how could Jesus do that? It's because of who he is. He is the perfect son of God who will be the perfect sacrifice for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12 says, By this will of God, we have been sanctified, how? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And what they used to do? Well, it says, well, every day, uh, priests would stand day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, isn't that amazing? Jesus volunteers to take the cup of judgment in our place, and he says, and I'm going to drink down every last drop of it so you don't have to do it. That is why he's experiencing an incredible intensity in his life. He knows what he's getting ready to do. So I look at Jesus, and I look at the story. I think, you know, he goes to the cross, he ra- he's, he's going to be raised from the dead. Did Jesus think anything about this, or was he just a robot? Absolutely not. He experienced the agony of knowing what was coming. He, ha- he was under intense pressure, knowing what he was going to face. But here what, here's what amazes me. He went to the cross anyway. And he did it with great resolve. We see the resolve of Jesus, and there will be a couple verses we'll look at. In verse 39, it says, Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And if, if you can't, go down to verse 45. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then he says, Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, now you can look at this and think, was Jesus a reluctant participant in the crucifixion? And, and you can get that idea if you look at verse 39, because in verse 39, Jesus says, hey, if this cup, can, the cup of judgment, if it can pass from me, I'm game. And that's, that's the way that you can read that passage of Scripture. And so when I look at that, I, I think Jesus, he is not a robot here. Jesus has feelings about what he's getting ready to face. But but what I see here is I see see the humanity of Jesus here. He understands. He knows what it means to suffer and to be sad. But the next part is where I see the divinity of Jesus. He says, but not my will, but yours. Even though he knows... He's going to carry sin, even though he knows that physically he will be beaten within one inch of his life, even though he knows that he will have a crown of thorns jammed onto his head and nails run through his hands and his feet. 
And then I look in verse 45 and 46, and it's interesting to me. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, get up, let's go. Now I'm thinking, now here's how I read it. He knows what's coming. Get up, let's go. Here's what that means. If I'm saying that, I'll let you know what that means. Let's get out of here. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beating a path out of here before they catch me. That's not what Jesus means here. When he says, get up, let's go, you know what it means? It means it's game time. It means I am resolved to go to the cross. Gentlemen, get up. Let's do this thing. He was ready to face the cross. Yeah, Jesus, he knew what his purpose was for coming here. Did you know that when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, you remember what he said? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus knew his purpose. In, in Luke 9.51, speaking of Jesus, it says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up to go to the cross, it says he determined to journey to Jerusalem. Other translations say he set his face like flint, like stone towards Jerusalem. In other words, he was immovable. He was going to go to the cross regardless of what anybody said because that was his duty. That was his calling. You know, I, I, one of my favorite stories is a story about sometimes how a donkey is used in order to break a wild horse. And what, what will be done is they will take a donkey and they will harness him to a wild horse. And as soon as that happens, that horse goes crazy. I mean, he starts, you know, bucking and kicking, and he's jerking that donkey all over the place. And, uh, you know, the cowboy knows, and he just watches him again. Man, that horse will just jerk that donkey off into the horizon until you can't see it anymore. Now, something happens about, you know, usually it's, a, it's usually a couple of days later. That same cowboy, he can look out, and he'll look in that field, and here's what he sees. After a couple of days, he will see the donkey in the lead, happily trotting back towards the ranch. And right behind the donkey is a horse that has been broken. Now, what happened? Well, in the midst of, you know, kicking and jerking and bucking, that horse has thrown the kitchen sink at that donkey, and nothing's going to change. That donkey's still there. And finally, the horse gives up. And he just says, well, if I can't beat him, I'll join him. And he just starts walking along with that donkey, and that's when the donkey takes the lead and takes charge. Okay, now, y'all, this is what Jesus did at the cross. You see, Satan has done everything he can to break Jesus. He has thrown the kitchen sink at him, and we see this in our scriptures. It's the beginning of it. He's thrown agony at Jesus and incredible pressure at Jesus, and he's going to throw pain and suffering and a horrific beating and death at Jesus. But, but Jesus, instead of running away from it and giving into it, he has set his face like stone and he marches into the battle and he says, Satan, as he throws all that stuff, Satan, you got anything else? And Jesus takes it. And we know that three days later, Jesus gets up from the dead. And so what this Garden of Gethsemane is, is this is the beginning. This is where we see that our faith is being built on unshakable ground. 
But I don't want us to be too clinical about it. I, I, want us to, I want us to notice this about the Scripture. As Jesus is making his way to the cross, well, y'all, y'all, he feels it. There is agony, there's incredible intensity, but he has a resolve that can't be broken. Now, why would he do that? Very simple. He went through all of these things because he loves you. He loves you. And so as we look at Easter and we see that Jesus willingly went to the cross, he did so because of you. Now, can you follow somebody like that? Can you give yourself to somebody like that who would go to the cross for you? You see, whenever Jesus went there, remember this, when Jesus was heading there, he felt it. He felt it. But he did it anyway. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Jesus, I thank you that as you had a decision to make, as you were in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, you were willing to say, not my will, but yours. Father, I pray that as we move to Easter, God, that we will have a greater and greater appreciation and respect and a desire to know you and to follow you and to give ourselves to you more so than ever before. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.